Thank you, brothers. It is great encouragement to see everybody here today, so thank you so much for coming out, not to hear me, but to hear the Word of God. Amen. Please turn in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 3. And I am so righteously stoked to be able to bring this message to you, for it has been brewing in my heart for many months now. So, hang on. (laughs) Today we're going to cover verses 1 to 4. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And the Holy Word of God says to us, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, raised up with Christ, excuse me, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you too for bearing with us through these technical difficulties, but even in this, God is glorified. Now as we approach this this next section of Paul's letter to the Colossians, we're going to be getting into what's called the imperatives, the commands, the instructions to us. And I want you to be thinking about the who, the what, and the where we are in Christ. Okay? The who, what, and where. Not so much the how, why, or when. That's left to the secret counsels of the Almighty. Amen? But the who, what, and where we are in Christ. In Matthew 28, 19-20, we have Jesus' final words to His disciples, to those apostles primarily, but to also the, the disciples that were present. But addressing his, his chief ministers of the state of Christ's kingdom, He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, my King James Version coming out there, but teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So with this Lord's command, with His encouragement, with His promise, these initial architects of the church went forth under the distinct supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, built upon the very solid, the unmovable foundation of Jesus Christ. And they began to build this spiritual infrastructure of Christ's body, the church. And even we today, right now, Heritage Grace Church in this building, as we are gathered together, we are the merciful result of God's predetermined will through the fulfillment of this great commission. Commissioned on our behalf as those who have heard the glorious gospel preached to us and enacted upon by that very same Spirit of Christ, 
And we're also gathered here today as those called to be equipped to be matured and to grow up in our communion with Christ. So we too may carry on this same gospel commission in our day and age and desperate as it is right now. For it has not become null and void in the current day with all of man's advancements with his technology. Far from it. It's, it's needed today as much as ever. But the commission is still a very sobering responsibility of the church. For us, as those who are to proclaim this glorious good news of Jesus Christ, and I want to look a little closer, as I said, at the who, what, and where we are as commissioned servants of Christ. Write these verses down if you like. I'm going to go through these a little quickly so we can get to the heart of our message. But John 18, verse 36 Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And those who are in Christ are now of another kingdom. We've been transferred into this kingdom of His beloved Son. Galatians 1.4 We as the church are of Him who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. Ephesians 2.6 Where we are now We are now those who have been raised up with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.20 What's our status? We are now citizens of heaven from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.13 What is to be our new realized perspective on this world? We are strangers and exiles of the earth. And Hebrews 13:14, what is it that we are to seek after, to long for? For here we do not have a lasting city. We are seeking the city which is to come, Zion, in the presence of Christ. And finally, 1 John 5, verses 4 to 5, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that he has that has overcome the world, our faith Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you you see, do you hear the actuality for us in these verses? For us to reach a lost and dying world, a world which we have now overcome through Christ, what we are seeing in these verses and what Paul is going to tell us today is that we must leave this world if we are to reach this world. Not physically leave it. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Not conformed to it, but we are to be renewed by the Word of God. We have entered into what we can call the full eschatology, eschatological reality of a new life that is of a heavenly realm, and it is eternal. For First Peter one, or excuse me, First Peter two eleven says, if we are in Christ. We are now really aliens and strangers on this earth. And when we have resolved in our minds and hearts to who, the what, and where we are now as believers in Christ, we can fundamentally rise above the world, but we can still truly sympathize and understand the spiritual poverty of those still of this world And in this ongoing fulfillment of Christ's commission within the church, 
and throughout the world in order to know Christ's victory over this world and to be overcomers, we must continually be preoccupied. We must have a preoccupation with Christ of who he is and who or what we are in and through Christ. The mind, the heart has to have a preoccupation of him before we can go out and administer truth in this world. It has to be set above and beyond the things that are in this world. This is not only our hallmark of true spirituality while in this life, but it is the starting point of growing in practical holiness. And in this preoccupation with Christ in our mind and our heart as, as the core of our affections, then we must do as Paul commanded. We, we must examine ourselves. And this is what Paul is going to do convincingly unfold for us today in these four succinct verses in Colossians 3. What it means to be preoccupied in our heart and our mind with Christ. The who, the what, and where we are in Him. And since it's been some time that we were in Colossians, I want to quickly give us an overview of what Paul is saying throughout this letter. And to review his theme and, and the method is led by the Holy Spirit. And then I want to briefly return to one of the isms that he, he warned us about as the persecutor of today's text, as a precursor, excuse me, of today's text. So a reminder of, of the flow and the entirety of the book. If you remember from several, several times back in June, chapters 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, is the doctrine. It's the doctrinal, and we see the foundational truths of Paul's prayer, one that he gave here, but also the prayers we see in Ephesians 1 and 3 and in Philippians 1, all of which are excellent insights into not only the theology of prayer and how we are to pray, but in Colossians, we read of Paul's giving thanks for these precious believers of their, their faith, their hope, their love in Christ and for one another. And so they, they and we will be filled with the knowledge of God's will to walk worthy, to please and honor Him in all things we do. And then we see Paul worships in this great doxology in verses 15 to 20, which he paints for us such a wonderful, glorious picture of Christ, both in how the Lord stands in all of creation and in His comprehensive redeeming work accomplished on our behalf how he has laid one foundation for believers to realize and live in all the sufficiency and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for both salvation and sanctification. Then in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul is still doctrinal here, but he starts defending these truths, and he's now more polemical, he's more argumentative, he's, he's more combative against these false teachers because what they purport can lead the believer away from all the sufficiency of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. However, nothing and no one else is needed but Jesus Christ. So Paul gives us a pastoral warning so we would not be deluded, so we would not be deceived through these very, very persuasive arguments. In many ways, they're, they're appealing to our, our natures and our senses. 
But Paul shows us they're fundamentally man-think. They're man-centered. They're man's reasoning from his natural, unredeemed state. And this teaching is deceptive and bankrupt and very dangerous to our lives now and impact the outcome of our eternal state because of their natural way of viewing things and reasoning they have it as its core. And once he completes this polemical section in chapter 2, he begins here in chapter 3 of what we call the practical section, the application. We hear this word a lot, practical, and it, it doesn't mean that everything that Paul taught up to this point is impractical. Maybe a better word for it is application or what the Puritans call experimental or experiential doctrine at work in us. It does not mean to say, as I said, that it's impractical. It's far from it. For we we cannot in any way divorce or separate or isolate practice from doctrine. If the divine doctrine is not at work within us, there will be no manifestation of its truth and its power in our lives. If we don't get the doctrine right, then our practice is going to be wrong. And we cannot build upon a faulty foundation. There'll be no fruit of the Spirit without proper doctrine. Would you rather build a house on the sand at the beach or upon a sure foundation stone? We even have a parable about that, don't we? So from chapter 1, with the foundation being laid in the glorious hymn and the creed of Christ, who he is, into chapter 2, he emphasized our union with Jesus Christ. And now in chapter 3, Paul begins to draw out the very practical application and implications of our sojourn in Christ in our everyday lives. And in these first four verses, Paul brings these two themes, these two thoughts now, they, they converge. Who is Christ? Who Christ is, the doctrinal in chapter 1. Who we are in Christ, the polemical in chapter 2. And now they meet together in these first four verses in chapter 3. And Paul powerfully and profoundly summarizes these truths. And then we're going to see how to apply them in every aspect of our life. How they concisely present, these concisely presented truths are now the foundational summary that flow out and impact every area, every relationship, every heart attitude, and every sphere. So within chapter 3, just briefly, 5 through 11, we're going to see how these doctrinal truths relate to our relationship to God and the radical call there is to holiness. 12 to 17 shows doctrinal relationship to our relationship within the church. 18 to 21 is how we relate to one another in our families. And then 22 all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, is how we relate, how it relates to our work environment. So we have for us in full view, a full view of the Christian life. A doctrinal foundation laid in Christ that serves as a foundation of what Paul says in the rest of this letter. Now I want to go back briefly to chapter 2. The three examples of the dangers Paul warned us about. Those three isms. If you remember the first one was legalism. Man-centered way of thinking that leads us and directs us away from Christ by thinking that we can earn God's favor on the basis of my performance. And this is the foundation, really, of what we call bad religion. God accepts me because I obey. Good religion is founded in the reality that God accepts me because Christ perfectly obeyed 
And it is by His grace that I am saved through faith and now being one with Him. Good religion is only about resting upon a perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and not about my feeble, pathetic attempts to please God in my own worth or my own power. Good religion is centered and focused upon Christ alone. Bad religion is focused on man. Now I'm intentionally going to go out of order here because the last one we saw was asceticism. And that idea, that, that wrong idea that we can obtain some higher level of spirituality where we can grow, we, we can advance through a personal experience of extreme physical deprivation and which has in it a sense of personal experience, but depriving self, subduing the physical senses and severely restrict and discipline our body that somehow through this, the soul is, is released to a higher level of fellowship with God. But I want to go back to mysticism. This, this notion that we can arrive at some higher plane of experience or a higher plane of spirituality, that there is something more to being a Christian than just being in Christ. Something else I'm longing for and I quite, can't quite reach yet. Some higher experience apart from the scriptures and through my own experience I can somehow achieve this immediate knowledge of God and higher worship. If we look closely and consider this, we can see it's deeply entrenched in modern evangelicalism. Not not just in discussions or debates we see online, but that it's it's entering or it's not just now entering into the church. It's embedded and it's given and it's even accepted in evangelicalism. And it's very difficult to let go of this particularism, especially if you've been exposed to it in your past especially if you were raised up in it. It can falsely hold this preciousness of light, of this perception of God in relationship to God. And it's not given up without a serious struggle. The danger of it is that it's detrimental to our walk with God, to our communion and living out his real, the reality of God and his communication with us, his communion with us. Because mysticism is self-derived, it's not biblical. And and here's more what I mean. And I bring this to light because this was a part of my past. This is where I was many years ago. The flow or working of mysticism is the idea and pursuit that someone can attain this immediate knowledge of God apart from the Bible. Not denying that the Bible is God's word, but it is that a person can attain an immediate knowledge of God, of who he is, and what his specific will is for me in a general or even specific terms, all through an immediate personal experience. And although this is a reality in in today's evangelical world in present day, it's not new. This goes back all the way to the Reformation, especially in the English Reformation, in answering the question, how does God speak? Well, from the Roman Catholic perspective, it was through the magisterium's interpretation of tradition, which carried more authority than the Bible. And this is what the reformers fought and stood against with sola scriptura. But later in the 1600s, in the midst of the English Puritan Reformation, there was another attack from the Quakers and the Shakers. They were the ones who believed in possessing this, this inner light 
and attributing this inner light, this inner voice, as the Spirit of God, speaking directly to them through impulses, through intuitions, through experiences, and even in ecstatic behavior. And to them, this was just as important, if not more so, than the Bible itself speaking. And this was nothing more than a subjective experience that was labeled or alleged by them as the working of the Holy Spirit. This same movement in our day is an ongoing idea, the same Quaker movement that was fought against before. And we've got to be aware of it today in our church and in ourselves even. It's the idea, the concept, the pursuit that through our feelings, through this subjective experience, it's like this. It's one of many possible scenarios. You're sitting on a beautiful beach early morning, Sun's coming up over the horizon. You hear the gentle roar of the, the waves, cool breeze. You hear the seagulls. And in this time, you're, you're looking for, wanting to hear the voice of God in this experience. You long for God to speak directly to you, to give you a word of wisdom, something unique, something immediate, something maybe specific to a decision or or particular aspect of wanting to know God's will but just in that moment an overwhelming sense of care of peace or decision or thought and through this inward self-contrived immediate sense they believe that this is what God is speaking and wants them to do but it doesn't have to be as ethereal as this scenario so how do we how do we test and see if this is still at work in us from past experiences or from another church or this is something planted in us, something we've read before. There's a couple markers I want to give you. Ask, do we consider that the indwelling Holy Spirit is the supreme authority for living and thinking? Note this carefully. Do we assume, think, and believe that the indwelling Spirit, apart from the God of the Bible, is the supreme authority for our living and thinking? Do we believe that some of our internal thoughts, our motivations, our impulses, emotions, or intuitions are the direct work of the Holy Spirit within us, communicating directly to us apart from the Bible? Do we believe that you can discern God's voice in your heart? If any of these sound familiar, if you recognize any of these tests that you are inclined in this way, that these beliefs have had some resonance or effect on you in your past, please consider these these very serious cautions. This mysticism will abandon you without any spiritual compass, any no true biblical external anchor for your soul. It leaves you to the tossing of the waves of the ocean that James speaks about because it's purely subjective. We all have the ability to impose our emotions upon God for anything we want if we want it bad enough. Mysticism will leave us alone with ourselves. What I mean is that our relationship with God is now contingent upon my intuitions, my impulses, my my internal thoughts, and that any assurance is now solely based on some nebulous feeling. All this does, does is cause us to delve deeper within which only brings about a greater spiritual anxiety. And mysticism will actually prevent us from hearing God's voice. It deceives us. It makes us dependent on feeling and impulses only. Why? 
because God makes himself known to me the same way he makes himself known to anyone. Just as we make ourselves known to one another, God himself speaks to us from outside our heart to us in an objective in an objective direction from his word. Just as in our personal relationships with one another, by talking to one another, getting to know your friend, your spouse, family member, co-worker, you talk to one another from outside yourselves, right? It's not subjective that I stir up an impulse of what another might be saying to me or about me. No, I hear those external words and I receive them into my mind. We don't cultivate relationships from within. We don't hear their voice in our heart or detect emotions to determine if that other person is real. But this is what can happen with our relationship with God if we're not careful in realizing just where God's voice comes from. And as believers in Christ, we're called to look away from ourselves, to look externally, to look to a real person, to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who really speaks and who speaks through this book. This word is his voice when we read it, when we study it, when we hear it preached. We are hearing the voice of the Lord, and I pray we come to appreciate this more and more, to treasure this and experience rather than any subjective internal emotion from within. So how is the Spirit involved if he dwells in us as believers? Spirit grants us illumination. He grants us understanding. He grants us enlightenment to his word and the truth of what God is saying to us. His external objective voice that has a reality to it, reality to it is speaking to us. Then it is internalized, implanted, and it feeds faith through hearing the external word of God. John 15, 26 and 16, 13 speak of the Spirit speaking and disclosing what he receives from Christ. And all scripture, according to 2 Timothy, is inspired by the Spirit. So as this faith that is cultivated in Christ, as he dwells in our hearts, and as this objective experience is realized by faith, through hearing and hearing the word, we do involve our emotions. We do involve our intuitions and our affections only as they are responding to God's word and the voice of his word becomes that transforming power within us as we are caught up and focused upon and living in the objective truth of Jesus Christ. So in this relationship, this communion, yes, there there are seasons of joy. There are seasons of affliction and despair and suffering. There are impulses and inclination but it is us experiencing the cultivation of biblical wisdom into us as our hearts and minds are conformed and shaped and brought in the conformity of God's word and God's will by his external objective revelation to us. This is why Christ is our unmovable foundation, our solid rock. It is the objective word of God where we go to listen and hear the voice of God to have our faith cultivated in him, to have our affections and our thinking transformed to his likeness and in the fullest fullest enjoyment of who he is. And this really makes Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3 come to life, does it not? Go home and read and meditate on those verses in light of this. 
But Martin Luther said it very well, very succinctly. For feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Not else is worth believing. So these three isms are what Paul addresses from a combated, full frontal polemic. Why? Because he knows how these deceptive teachings and their appeal can lead the believer away from the fullness that he wants these believers and for us to know that fullness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. They will, as he said, sever us from the headship of Christ and leave us wandering about in this life. This is serious, and it needs to be confronted head on. So now, after addressing the doctrinal and the polemic, all of which are foundational, instructive, substantive to give us a full awareness of the fullness and truth found in Christ and the dangers of these deceptions, he now ushers the necessary, these, these synergistic realities, the practical outworkings of these indicative truths that are found in Christ through our lives on earth. And Paul is telling us that the doctrinal truths of Christ and all that he is, all that he has done, must become the external manifestation of our doctrine. Another way of saying this, the indicative, the doctrine, the foundational truths do not cancel out the imperative the commands, the living, and the loving response and obedience. Rather, it is the foundation that enables us to carry it out. And this doctrinal truth is speaking of a person, and it's revealing to us an enormity of his love to fill us so that we desire to respond from within and to obey. For the believer in Christ who is in this interval between the already and not yet, this this ethical exhortation of the imperative is necessary. It's vital so that the sanctification of our souls and maturing of our souls and making us ready for Christ's return, for holiness of heart, for righteous living, so that we may see him, so that as we who are now declared unleavened by the work of Christ are now in the daily process of removing that old leaven that remains. So these four verses lay a foundation for what Paul practically addresses in the rest of this chapter, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. And Paul takes us on a spiritual journey here that reflects, should reflect the reality of every believer. We're going to see three elements here. We're going to see something of past, something of the present, and something of the future. Not, Not just elements of time, but essential characteristics of the work of Christ in the life of the believer. And that was just the introduction. So therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul begins with the past, which we saw previously from chapter 2, verse 20, and again here in verse 3. If you have died with Christ. And now in chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, He does this as a reminder that God never tells us 
or enables us to do anything for him without first reminding us of what he has done, already done for us, and will do for us in and through his son. He introduces these reminders with the word if, but not with a sense of question or doubt, but better, this is translated since. It's a state of reality. Since this is the case for you Colossians, then certain outcomes will be expected to follow. And after Paul has reminded the Colossians and us of how much God has already provided for us through the death of Christ, we should now stop and examine this for the rest of our time. We we could do that. Paul now turns our focus on what has happened through Christ's resurrection as part of this past work done by God. All of this referring to our union with Christ and what depth of meaning this has for a Christian. We become a Christian in a moment of time in our lives through the work of the Spirit outside of ourselves, making us one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are now one with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are one with him in what his death, his burial, his resurrection. So in full reality as a believer, I can stand before you and state that according to the word of God and emphatically that Christ's death is my death, that his burial is my burial, that his resurrection is my resurrection. Now this is true legally, meaning that any true believer can say my sin and that penalty, that full threat of condemnation and judgment of God's wrath that was over my head and being stored up for the day of judgment was my previous, what was my previous predicament is now gone. And now that all of what Christ did in and through his death, his burial and resurrection, now all being mine means that because I am one with him, he who paid the penalty for my sins means he paid it for me. My penalty in full has been paid. What a glorious exchange Christ has done on our behalf. Do, do we believe this? Do we live in this? It's nothing we've done in our own strength or our own ability, but that we are now knit together with the Lord Jesus Christ. What is his, God now reckons to be mine. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be saved, to be raised up now and one with Christ and as one seated with him. There is now no, no what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in Christ or in heaven. We are united in him by the Holy Spirit. And this wonder of wonders through his indwelling power, sin's power is broken in us. Now Paul fast forwards a little bit and moves into the present. And what he says here in the latter part of verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a glorious truth. What a glorious reality that we are hidden. Hidden with Christ in God. What does this mean that our life is hidden with Christ in God? It, It doesn't mean quantity of life, but certainly quality of life. Alive to the dimension of God's eternal kingdom. Now, there there are three aspects of this being hidden with Christ that come to the forefront here. And for the sake of alliteration, we can say first is similarity, or we could say identity. We are now identified with Christ. 
identified in Christ as one in him. We now have a new identity. We are Christians. All we are, we are in him. The second, it also implies our security. We are hidden in Christ, all whom the Father has given me. No one, no person, no spiritual realm, nothing on heaven, nothing on earth, nothing in hell is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. We're not just hidden with Christ, but in God. And thirdly, it it implies secrecy. It is a secret. Being hidden means that we do not yet see Christ fully in all that He is. But also that I do not see you as you really are as a Christian in Christ. And neither do you see me as I really am in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. Similarity, who we are, all that has been lavished on us and all those positionally and legally seated with Christ in the heavenlies, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.6, we haven't yet entered into the full reality of it since it is at this present time hidden. Just as Christ is now hidden from our full view, full glorious exposure to all his creation in this world, so are we hidden as what we are in Christ from this world and from one another. And within this third aspect, there is also an intimacy that Christ gives us with God through salvation. Christ is now, as Moses declared, our intimate, hidden dwelling place. Paul continues now on this journey. He looks to the future reality. For the true Christians here in verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, and what is life but eternal life, the already but not yet life, the new kingdom life as kingdom citizens. But notice that that inclusive change Paul shares here with the beloved, who is our life. It is revealed that you also will be revealed with him in glory. Our hidden estate will be no longer. All that has been done historically will come to fullness and revelation. And all that has been done for us by God in Christ through the Holy Spirit will result in the perfection of our body and soul in the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ and full of his glory. Now, all of this from these four verses is the summation, as I said, the convergence, if you will, of all that Paul has been establishing as our foundation, bringing all these doctrinal truths of who Christ is, who we are in Christ through the polemical arguments. Now, coming together in these verses to apply now, to rely upon, to stand upon in every aspect of our lives. Now, before you think, I've forgotten about the imperatives the commands that Paul is focusing on here. Let's go back and look at verse 1. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Let me begin with this very probing question that I read some time ago from John Owen in his work called Spiritual Mindedness. Quote, what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? Close quote. This simple but very disarming question really serves as a measurement of our spiritual mindedness. I think this is what was prevalent on Paul's heart. The reason 
is that both Jesus Christ and he are concerned about the development of our spiritual thinking. The way we think will determine the way we act, and what we think about will greatly influence our own will and affections. Where do I get this? Well, first of all, both of these commands are in the present tense, meaning that they are transcended in time. Just as for the Colossians, so also for us, they are to still be an everyday act of reality in our moral and in our heart affections, in our seeking. It involves the heart. It has a moral implication as we are to be seeking the things above. And second, a mental application or implication as we are to be setting our minds on things above. Where and what is your heart seeking after when you have time to think about nothing in particular where is your heart and mind where does it wander to is it more inward and self-centered or is it heavenward and Christ-centered what do you think about in the midst of either the mundane or the exceptional or even in the midst of suffering Paul is saying here very succinctly and powerfully I want you to think. I want you to think with mental comprehension and understand who Christ is, seated in the heavenly places, to be preoccupied upon the one glorified Lord who is now ruling and reigning in fullness of power and authority, sovereign over all creation, over all kings, rulers, economies, legislators, presidents, businesses, bosses, your very breath, your life, every aspect of your being, he is seated as one resting in the fullness of his sovereign authority. I want you to consider, to meditate upon, to come to a greater understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Coming in the likeness of our own sinful flesh, perfectly obeying the Father on our behalf in every single aspect of life throughout every moment of his life upon the earth for our benefit. I want you to understand what it means to be in union with him, to be hidden in him, to be protected and kept by his power, past, present, future. Do you get this? Do you know and believe this? Have you reasoned this through? And is this making greater sense to you? If you as one who professes faith in Christ, do you grasp who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ? If he is yours and you are his by grace through faith, this only makes reasonable sense. If this delights your heart, if it causes even a spark of desire for Christ, then you will seek the things that are above. You will be setting your mind upon the things above. This further means that I will not just wonder in awe about the things we anticipate to be in heaven, but that I will set my heart and head upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, the firstborn of all creation. I'll seek to know him just as I would a very dear friend or a soon-to-be spouse, and especially an existing spouse, but with such greater measure in intensity that you and we are only able to do this through knowing him by faith, through his detailed documented account of the revelation of himself in his word. The great lover of our souls has revealed himself to us 
through his very word? Do we not want to know him? And if you are his, you will. If you love him, you will. Do you remember and meditate upon his glorious work of redemption for your soul? In and upon yourself as many others in our body and throughout the world, how, how he alone has transferred you as a dead sinner, bound in the dungeon and darkness of sin, fully enslaved, but now free, liberty, liberty in his kingdom, as his citizen in the glorious kingdom of light and life and true love. Do you remember his present work and what it means for you to be one with the Lord Jesus Christ? What it means now to be a part of his spiritual body, his church, a body that is being knit together, a body that is just like what is represented in our physical bodies, having a head that is one being built, being fitted together, being strengthened, the bones, the joints, the ligaments, the tendons, all supporting one another, growing and maturing as it functions in this world. A glorious body that is held together, united by his very Holy Spirit, that is animated by the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is energized and equipped and directed by the head that infuses life in this body. Do we consider, too, what Christ is going to do tomorrow? That day that is coming, that day that we are being prepared for as his bride, where Christ, who is our groom, our husband, will come again when he returns to this earth, revealing the fullness of his glory, when the consummation of our union will occur, when the great wedding of the Lamb will take place, where the marriage and full union and glory and with the fullness of reality and sight will take place. Do you long for this day with holy fervor and frequent meditation? This just made me think a very special time when a man and woman meet, when a mutual interest is sparked and they begin getting to know one another. They begin a courtship. They begin to talk and to learn about each other, to get to know each other's ways. And with a, such a sacrificial love and yearning for one another, planning, waiting, praying, preparing, maturing, and all the time looking forward to, to the day when before God and their families, before men and women, they commit their lives together in this holy and sacred and beautiful union, united in one flesh and one purpose to glorify God. This is where we are, brothers and sisters. You who are in Christ, who seek after Christ, however, however imperfect, however weak that may be at times, however you may struggle in this life with a faith that may be as small as a mustard seed, you are there in this betrothing, this engagement, this courting process, getting to know, setting your mind, setting your affections and your heart upon your future husband, your Lord, your King, your kinsman, Redeemer. And all the while, see what your faithful King is doing on your behalf, interceding for you, doing all that he promised to do that we would seek throughout the gospel, but especially in John 14 to 17, where he says he's loving you, providing for you, revealing himself to you, preparing a place for you, and preparing you where Christ is along with you. He is looking and longing for the day when he will be revealed in glory. He who is our life now and our life eternal will be revealed, and we 
that engaged bride will become the united bride fully and finally consummated in eternal, holy, perfect, eternal bliss with our Lord. Amen? These verses are a wonderful, exceptional testament and call as Paul brings it all together in culmination of just who Christ is and what it means to be united to him. Because Paul, by the Spirit, is drawing out these obvious implications, therefore, live. Live in the reality of who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ by seeking him and the things above. Daily be setting your mind upon him and the things above. This is only how we diminish and starve the allurements of the world when we are preoccupied with Christ, when we are transforming our minds away from the things of the earth that lead to destruction, how we spiritually mortify remaining sin. I think it was Spurgeon who said that as our treasures are laid up in heaven, our treasures on earth are laid down. And it was surely Christ who said in Matthew 6.19, we are to store up, we are commanded to strive for and work toward these eternal treasures that will be found and realized in heaven first and foremost. Why? Because they're in Christ. They are eternal. They are where our heart affections are to be directed because there this treasure cannot be destroyed. They belong to the kingdom of God. Beloved, do you find strength in these truths? Strength against the vanities in this life and this world. If we lovingly, willfully obey these commands in light of who we are in Christ, if our identity is in Him, then here is our strength to have true biblical, true kingdom mindset when we are faced with major decisions, when we contemplate and evaluate all the various happenings in our life where all the demands and the issues of this life come to bear upon us all that we encounter and here is strength when we suffer hardship when we are persecuted for the sake of Christ when we are afflicted in this life in the midst of a a wearying wilderness of life yet still according to the purposes of God where we find that it is in the strength of these realities at work in our hearts and minds that we find his strength. We know his peace that surpasses our natural understanding. And we're able then to glorify God in all we do and say with thanksgiving and joy, where we can begin like Paul in growing measures to consider this present suffering as not worth comparing to the final glory that will be revealed to us. And finally, a last implication is that it strengthens us in the pursuit of holiness. A holiness that we have entered into and have been called to by Christ. A holiness that is worked out and in and through us. And this is exactly where Paul is going to go in the fifth verse in this chapter and following that may rightly be called the radical side of holiness for the believer. This Christ-centered, Christ-exalting foundation strengthens us and stirs us on. It motivates us. It compels us because of the love of Christ. To live here and now in the reality of who and what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to strive with all our strength in him to put on the new and put off the old, to be as holy as he is holy, as God conforms us to his very likeness and holiness and goodness. We have not only died to sin in Christ, but we have also died to the world in all of its lusts. So I encourage us all to take stock in these verses, to purposefully invest our time, our mind, our heart upon these things and obey what the word of God says to us, that we must actively, daily be setting both our hearts, our minds, our affections, our desires upon Christ, that we may truly be transformed in the renewing of our minds but so that we may truly and actively live in the reality of these things and be a testimony of light and life to the dying world around us. And for the unbeliever who is in our midst, for the unsaved, young and old alike, please hear and take stock in these realities as well. Seriously consider what it means to be outside the Lord Jesus Christ, to not be hid in Christ and God, to not know and experience a true heart delight in your creator and your present judge. What it means to be outside of the only one in whom there is salvation for your souls, the only one in whom there is freedom from sin, the one in whom I must be one with in death, one with in burial, one with in resurrection in order for God to forgive me and to assuage his very real, very present wrath that is upon you in order for God's justice to be satisfied and in order for God to grant you eternal life and understand these glorious truths. You must be one with his beloved Son. Seriously consider your condition before a holy God and and consider that it is appointed unto man once to die. Yes, only once in this life and you will face death. But then you will also just assuredly face his divine judgment and with no Savior to mediate for you. To this reality for you, I say, repent. Turn to Christ. Leave your sin and cast yourself upon his mercy and believe upon him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these Lord, not just suggestions, not not just reminders to us, not passive realities, but Lord, we, we pray, we ask God for the realities of all the foundation that is in Christ be enabled by your spirit, be quickened by your grace within us that we would obey, willingly obey these commands and help us to set our affections, Father, upon Christ, seated at your right hand in fullness of glory, sovereignly ruling and reigning over all the earth, all the heavens, and yet so intimately concerned of our very souls that he would spill his very blood to cleanse us from our sin, to die to give us life, and to give us such a quality of life in the here and now to redeem us, to sanctify us, to mature us, and to transform us. And with a mind and a heart full of mercy that we have received, that we are able to carry out His command 
His commission to make disciples, to baptize, to teach, to mature, to replicate, to continue the growth of your church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray you would make these realities, these commands, a reality in our lives. Help our minds to be transformed. Help the hardness, the indifference, the apathy in our hearts to be crushed. May the sweetness of your word melt away, Father, the rock. Grant us good soil, Lord, for the truths of your word to be planted. In Jesus' name. Thank you.